Hello, it's Vikas Porta, Chairman of the Vaki Foundation. You are listening to a session from our Global Education and Skills Forum, a place where leading politicians, businesses, philanthropists, activists, and of course, the world's best teachers share, debate, and discover new ways for education to transform our world. Keep the global conversation going and share your thoughts on the topics discussed with the hashtag GESF. So welcome to uh, a panel about the first thousand days of life. Um, Vikas, uh, who everybody knows, asked me if I would put together and moderate a panel um, about early childhood development. And I said, is it OK if it has nothing to do with schools? And, uh, and he said, do whatever you want. Um, but I thought that it, that it was important because I come from a foundation that's been working for almost 60 years on early childhood development and uh, has held a deep belief that uh, parents are a child's first teacher and that learning begins uh, before birth, in fact, but certainly at birth. And when we started this work in the 1950s, I tell everybody in the 1960s that people thought we were a little strange. Um, they said, why are you working with babies? Uh, they have nothing going on in their brain. They are living in a total buzz of confusion. They don't understand what's happening around them. You would even see medical literature saying they don't really feel pain. And so people thought we were a little strange that we had chosen to work on early childhood. Fast forward today, and many of you will know, now what they're telling us is babies are the smartest people on the planet. <laughs> they have one million new neural connections every second. That changing small things in the beginning of life is the most effective way to change the future, not just of individuals, but of countries and communities and societies. And so there's been a lot more interest in this topic since we began, and a lot more excitement. And I'm very pleased to have an exceptional panel who can uh, share their own views on this. Um, and some of the, the countries that I would say are, are really pioneers in this uh, for a very long time, Brazil and, and Jamaica. So uh, I, uh, I'm going to introduce the panelists, and then I'm going to start with Elisa. But Elisa is, is a teacher um, from Mexico, and we wanted to start with her because uh, that's where it starts, uh, at, at the ground. And she's a teacher who understands that what happens at home matters. She's going to tell us a little bit about that. And then we're going to move on to Mariana, who works for uh, one of the leading foundations in Brazil, and explain how uh, uh, foundations can play a role in, in improving early learning. Osmar Terra, the Minister of Citizenship from Brazil, also one of my heroes. Um, he's leading uh, what's probably the largest scale-up in early childhood development in the world right now. Um, a really exceptional program that he'll speak about called Criança Feliz. Minister Floyd Green, Jamaica, it, we'll talk about it later, has been a pioneer in this area since the 1960s. We'll also talk about the Brain Builders program that they're working on. And Annette Dixon, who's vice president at the World Bank Group, um, who in the past five, six years have really taken a much bigger interest in this area, give us a sense of what's going on around the world. So Elisa, we wanted to, to start with you as a teacher um, who, uh, who works in schools, who works with families. Uh, you know, why, why does early childhood matter to you? Well, when my kids were born, my own children, I was 
amazed uh, how easily and joyfully they could learn almost everything. Now, I wasn't a teacher back then, but I just wanted to make the most of those precious early years. Um, I found a book called How to Teach Your Baby to Read. I know the title is in Italian. I read it, and soon enough, I was carrying out a program with my own kids at home, which included early, early reading, um, music, arts, physical development, although we had a wonderful time. Now, when it was time for my firstborn to go to school, my problem is that I could not find a school in my uh, hometown in Mexico, Aguascalientes, in the belly button of Mexico. I could not find a school that was stimulating enough. They were all very traditional and, may I say, even a little boring. Um, so I ended up founding my own school. But that's another story. Uh, what I want to stress today is that parents, as you said, are the first but also the most influential teachers a child will ever have. It doesn't matter if, if they are aware or not, of, or not, the parents, if they are aware of, of their role or not as teachers of their own children. But uh, too many families around the world lack the resources or the knowledge to provide for uh, an environment, a rich, stimulating environment at home. And um, one, of, uh, one organization, an NGO, no, a governmental organization, in Mexico called uh, Prospera, which in Spanish means prosper. Uh, they were serving seven million of uh, Mexico's poorest families. And they found out that the kids that they were serving in this program, the Prospera kids, had uh, very big problems when entering school. They, all were, they were facing big challenges when coming into school. Because by the time they got into first grade at six, they were already way behind their peers. Uh, and as I said, these were kids from the poorest families in Mexico. Now, what was worse is that remedial programs at school were actually not being of any help. Three, four, five years later, these kids were still behind, very behind their peers. So the people from Prospera said, okay, something is going on here. Uh, or maybe there's nothing going on in the early years that we need to, to make it happen. So we came on board because, as you know, when kids come to school with uh, severe academic difficulties, there are lots of things that teachers can do, but very often it's not enough to, to make it up and to help the kids race up to the challenge. So we had to go way back before school, when the kids are still at home. Uh, that's, that's the place where we come up. Um, I began working as a volunteer for the Institute for the Achievement of Human Potential, an NGO in the US, where I received the training uh, as a mother teacher. And um, I designed uh, and implemented with this governmental institution, Prospera, uh, an early development program focused on early language and early reading. And this was aimed for kids age two to five years old. We taught the parents how to teach their babies to read at home and increase their vocabulary, their language development. 
Uh, we provide them with the teaching materials. Each kit could be shared for up to four families at the same time. We train facilitators that could visit families every few weeks and see how they were doing. Now, right now, um, it's, an, it's very early stages and we are facing some political uh, problems with, with the program, but um, we have already been seeing some results. Some of the kids are already reading some single words, but what is most important, parents and grandparents are spending quality time playing and teaching their own children. Now, I am assuming, of course, that we are taking care of the basics, that kids um, have uh, a loving environment, that they have uh, good nutrition, good health care. But if at the same time that we are taking care of all these basics, we also take care of uh, building their brains, why not? I think that the first thousand days of a child's life um, is the magical time where most of uh, brain development happens. And to do things the same way that we have done before, to leave this critical period to chance, just because we don't know how to do better or because we are afraid, uh, out of habit, out of ignorance, is, is just not acceptable. We need to change these things. We need to provide these learning experiences for kids to really build their brains and reach their full potential. Thank you. I, I forgot to, to mention, I asked each of the panelists to send me a picture. Um, uh, and and uh, this is your picture. If you could just say a couple words, why, why this? What, what, did, what does this picture mean to you? Well, these are kids from my own school, and these are um, younger than three. They are one, two, and three years of age. And in this picture, we're just enjoying reading. Uh, reading, of course, <laughs> Uh, a reading program, a good reading program, is not only teaching your child to read, it's also reading with them and making reading the most enjoyable um, experience for them, yeah. reading and playing. Yeah. So thank you, Elisa. Uh, Mariana, I'm going to turn to you. You talked a little bit about um, ignorance being one of the barriers, people not knowing what's going on. And you guys have done amazing work as a foundation trying to um, inform and inspire people all over Brazil because you identified the same barrier. Could you talk a little bit about how you've gone about doing that, some of the results that you're getting? Yes, thank you, Michael, for the invitation and thanks everybody here. It's an honor to be part of this amazing panel and of this event. Um, the uh, Maria Cecilia Foundation is a, is a family foundation based in Brazil. Uh, we've been around for over 50 years but we were not that smart, so we didn't figure out back then that uh, we would focus on early child development, but because we had a good cause. Maria Cecilia was actually a 13-year-old uh, girl who died of leukemia, so her dad created the foundation to focus on science, on hematology and uh, labs, and actually really raise the bar of the issue in Brazil with a lot of infrastructure, with a lot of uh, research investment, and really we, could, we can see that less and less kids have that same problem that Maria Cecilia had years ago. So when, uh, when a shift in the foundation, we realized the science was, you know, medicine was evoluting and the science was at a point that we, couldn't, we would not need to be a part of it anymore. 
we decided to change the focus. And that's when we had a whole conversation with society leaders and, and people from the family to focus on something different. And that's when we were waking up for the early child development importance and how much it was underrated and how much we there was a role to be played in Brazil in terms of informing, like Michael is saying, but also doing more. So when we started this in 2007, uh, the main goal was to get the science and translate that science to people and make that easy, make that simple, make that part of what Elisa was saying, which is we as parents have such an important role, but if we are not aware of that, we may miss a chance of acting as such in a more effective way. So the whole point was to bring that, that science-based evidence to information that anyone can use anywhere in any home, no matter what social class. And that was the main focus in the beginning. But then we realized that if we did more, we could actually affect more people. And uh, so when we're talking about scaling things up, you're not only gonna be able to talk to, to the people directly. And we realized that we needed to talk to main uh, people and stakeholders that had influence and that would, able, would be able to bring up public policies that would support the cause in a more structured way for the country. And that's actually when our hero here that I shared that talk with Michael helped us in and creating that whole infrastructure. And uh, Minister Osmar has been a champion of the cause in Brazil. And Maria Cecilia Foundation is honored to, to say that it's been supporting him and his ideals uh, from the beginning. And I think we've supported each other in establishing a lot of the programs. One of the first programs that we established was a training course at Harvard for key stakeholders, like I mentioned, from different areas of society. So we're talking about taking uh, public leaders, public policy leaders. We're talking about taking social entrepreneurs and leaders and influential people. But we're also talking about taking private sector leaders. And, uh, and we did that at executive training. And uh, over, today we have, we're going to the eighth edition of that training course. Uh, which means that we have you know, help to, to be part of capacitating uh, 500 uh, leaders. And these were actually the people that created so much infrastructure that Brazil has today, and I'm sure that the minister is going to tackle. But I think that the, the key issue for us back then, it was that we needed that engagement in the hands of people that could actually translate, translate that into influencing things that can change and affect many more people. And I think that after that, we looked at journalists, training. So we've been doing that through putting things in the media and sort of pressuring what, we're call, what we call our more structured strategy, which is you have the public, the uh, leaders, you have the private sector leaders, you have the social leaders, but you also have society that needs to pressure from the bottom up in order to create that change. And we do that through communication, but also through models. So the models are that we, we bring a lot of the best practices that are uh, in, internationally been proven and all that evidence, and then we take that into action and we sort of adapt that to the reality of Brazil. You do have to remember that you know best practice, international practices are amazing, but countries have their own context. Brazil has many different contexts in itself. So when we translate those models, we also adjust to our own reality, to, to our own problems, to our own issues, and then we tackle that in a more effective way. But we had a, a, an important role in trying to bring that and implementing that on the field with local governments then. So you're trying to do on the federal level the policies, but then you have to go to the implementation side and work with the cities and the people on the ground to actually see how those policies 
policies are implemented. So I think those, and then just to mention the, the two focus areas that we're working at with all of these strategic approaches, we're working with education and with parenting. So based also on what you said in the role that the parents are so important, and based on the fact that we have two million kids until six years of age in Brazil, of which seven million are underprivileged kids. So we have a third of our kids being underprivileged. Privilege. And that means that the access of these kids to the policies that we're talking about are even lower. So the more work we do, the less we're going to uh, have of that gap, and this is part of what we're looking at. So that's why pa parenting and school and, and, and early education are our main focus, because then if you have 30% of that, those kids in school, you really need to tackle that 70% of the kids that are at home through the parenting skills. And that's been our, our, our dream. Our, our, honestly, our, our, you know, the why we breathe, while we're here, and uh, it's, it's been, it's been changing a lot. There were a lot of steps that we were able to take, but there's so much more to do. So. The, the, this, before we move on to, to, to Minister Green, the, the, you saw this woman crying uh, in the, in the film, and when I, I went on a home visit in Brazil uh, uh, earlier. Uh, well, last year now, and uh, I asked one of the the women, um, sort of, do you like this program? Why do you like this program? And she had a similar reaction. She explained all the things that she was learning, um, but she said, you know, no one comes to visit me. I'm I'm alone here, um, and uh, but through this person, I'm now connected to the world. And I and I come back to it later, but I think that that effect on the caregiver themselves. So I, I have a, a five-year-old daughter, um, and I've been doing this job uh, basically since she was born. And we have all of the, you know, the resources that we need, and we're still battling. So I can only imagine what it's like uh, if you're a single mom, uh, you got a couple kids, a couple jobs. And, and so I think one of the things to keep in mind, and that Crianza Feliz does really well, is early childhood is not just about the baby. It's about the person who takes care of the baby. And, and just very grateful for the, the political will, the political leadership that Minister Terra has, has shown. Um, could you put the, 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 the black and white picture up? Just, in, in, Minister Green and I just met for the first time, um, uh, but I explained to him that the, the first project that we ever did um, was in 1964 in Jamaica. Um, and this is a picture from that project. Uh, and <laughs> since then, it was with Dudley Green, who's sort of a, uh, um, a, f a famous uh, Jamaican uh, educator. And, uh, and Jamaica still, to this day, is this little island, but there's still a source of so much innovation in, in early childhood development, in particular at the University of the West Indies. Um, and we asked Min Minister Green to speak, not just because of that, because uh, he, he's also showing um, political will, and he's going to talk a little bit about uh, the Brain Builders program. Um, and you can see there's a theme here, which is the Latin America and the Caribbean is a very exciting place for this particular uh, topic. So, Minister Green, please share. All right. Um, firstly, let me thank you for the invitation, and let me thank the Varky Foundation for bringing us all here. It's always amazing to see how, despite our diversity, our different backgrounds, how some of the challenges are similar and the mission is, 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 is largely the same. So I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about Jamaica and our experience. 
with early childhood and early childhood development and, and where we are on our Brain Builders program, which is a, a new initiative that we've embarked upon. Uh, as you would have heard, we started fairly early. We got our independence in 1962. We are a small island, a developing country, and very early we started on trying to treat with the issue of access to early childhood education. Our children traditionally start school at three years old, and the government tried from very early to provide spaces for those children. But not only did the government do so, a lot of private individuals, teachers, um, just people in communities who had a heart and wanted to see children do well, started to open up these institutions to provide care for our children. So very early in our educational journey, we dealt with the issue of access. And for a very long time, I think we could boast that we had 98, 99% of our children that were three years old going into some form of educational institution, some form of early childhood development center. But then we had to take another look because we were dealing with the issue of access, but we were still having the problem of quality. And we were still having the bigger problem of, of the performance of our children as they go on the educational journey. We did a, a, a groundbreaking study in, in relation in about the 1980s that looked more at quality, looked more at stimulation, but importantly, it did a tracking of the students, of the children. So it, intervening in the lives of a number of children, providing stimulation, providing nutritional support, and then track them for 20 years. And we recognize that those children that we intervened in their life and did the tracking, that they did 25% better than the children that there, were no, that there was no intervention. So we again looked at the quality of our early childhood system. And we decided now from a government perspective to take the approach of moving with laws and regulations. So we had the access, but again, what was the quality? So we started something called the Early Childhood Commission, where we actually passed a law in 2005 to mandate that there were standards that these early childhood institutions would have to live up to. We did 12 standards based on the research that we knew in relation to stimulation, nutrition, safety, play, that if the schools were enacting those standards, then the children's outcomes would be better. We also set up something that we call the National Parenting Support Commission. Again, to work with parents, to work with these schools, um, and to see if we could raise the quality. So now we're about 14 years into the Early Childhood Commission. Um, we've gone a, a significant distance. Clearly when we started, there were no schools that were registered. We started a registration process and said that schools had to reach at least 50% of the standards for them to be registered. Um, and now we can say almost all our schools are registered. Now we want to move them from registration to actual what we call certification, where they have the entire 12 standards. And that has been a long journey because again, the resources at this level is sometimes difficult. But as we went through that journey and as the research, we, we looked at more research, we realized that while it's good to intervene at three years old, maybe we were intervening too late. And again, more of the research is pointing us in the direction of that first thousand days. And we, we, we recognize a number of things, not only in rural Jamaica and in poor households. What, what we saw happening right across the country is that much earlier, children were going into formal spaces. So largely because of single parent households, we found a lot of our middle income earners were sending their children into paid daycare facilities. And those children were doing well. 
But a lot of our poor parents, our rural parents, never had the resources, nor did they have the facilities to send those children into earlier. So what you would have happening, these single parents, from as early as six months, and sometimes earlier, they had to be back out into the working world, leaving their children in the care of normally grandparents, normally extended siblings, and not getting the stimulation that they needed. So we decided last year, um, to, from the government perspective, to set up daycare centers. But we never wanted to call them daycare centers because they're much more than just caring for the children during the days. We have started to set up brain builders, which the government completely pays for and gets early childhood professionals to go into these centers. Um, parents can bring their children as early as six months into these centers. We deal with nutritional support. We deal with stimulation in the truest sense of the world. As I said, we have specialists in those centers. And I, I guess one of the big things is that it's completely free. So we've started to target, especially our rural communities. We started to work with some of already our primary schools that are government run, and we use those spaces. We retrofit them to ensure that they can care for our smallest children, and we have our children come. We've already set up now 20 of those centers. Clearly, it's early in terms of being able to assess, but anecdotally, one, the mere fact that the poorest among our population now have somewhere to bring their children to. At this earliest stage, the reviews have been amazing. And clearly, as a government now, what we're looking to do is to see how we can channel more resources. Our aim is to set up 126 of those centers by the end of this year, and then hopefully, with the help of foundations, and I think the Brazil model is a very good model, and our other international partners, and I'm happy to be sitting beside the World Bank. Um, <laughs> we can expand this program um, e even quicker than we expect to. Thank you, Minister Green. Um, so moving to the, to the World Bank, but, but also important to note um, that it's from New Zealand. Um, who, who is, is also a leader in early childhood development that we don't hear that much about. And I think it's also appropriate to say has been a, an important leader in the, in the last few weeks on, on other very important issues. Um, so the World Bank, uh, he, I mean, hearing what these countries are doing, um, and, and I know that uh, former President Kim was very keen on human capital and you've begun to do a lot more. How can, uh, how can these experiences help to inform work all over the world? And, and what role can the bank play in that? Well, just, just uh, to, to come back to your first point, I have to tell a story. Because at the World Bank, I work with people who are really smart, well-trained. Well um, just about everybody I work with has graduate degrees from the best universities in the world. I even work with people who have two PhDs. I'm not sure why you'd do that. But. Uh, so I always tell people I'm a graduate of the best early childhood development program in the world. And in the, 19, in the 1950s, a, a program started. It's still going. And our grandchildren are also graduates of it. And it, it's called Play Center. And it's play-based early childhood development. But the, the real magic of it is it, it trains the parents. Uh, actually, who, who run the programs. And for my, my mother and father had no high school education. They grew up in very poor, dysfunctional families. Um, and in many respects, Play Center changed the destiny of my family and broke the intergenerational uh, poverty that my parents had grown up in. And so we all uh, um, 
both me and my siblings all grew up to actually have, I think, uh, great uh, productive lives uh, as a result of our early experience. So I'm a huge fan, don't need to be convinced. But in the last um, decade, we really started to scale up our work in early childhood development. We've essentially tripled our work program in this area, and we want to, we want to do even more, because I think this, the, the evidence is so compelling that focusing on not just the first thousand days, but everything that happens in the family, and it starts of course, preconception. It starts with the conditions into which children are conceived. I've just come from Pakistan, which this week had a human capital summit. And this is a really important inflection point for Pakistan, because in Pakistan is a very large, growing country um, and has uh, some big challenges. Nearly half its children are stunted. Um, which is a huge challenge, but this is a, something that can be changed with a lot of action quickly. Um, we've got great success stories of countries that within a, less than a decade have substantially reduced stunting. But one number that stuck in my head from Pakistan is that uh, for, for girls that get married before the age of 18, she has an average of six children. And that is, as we know, it's too young to be having children. It, it, and we really need to help empower girls and women to plan their families when they're in their best situation to take care of their kids. Because it's those kids that have the toughest start in life. Um, and so uh, a lot of what we're doing now is really working across maternal, child, adolescent, health and education, bringing social protection, education, health, all together to really support families. And because I think we all appreciate that the family is the most important social institution for human capital accumulation. Um, and last year alone, our financing in this, in this area was over $2 billion. Mm. So we really want to do a lot more in this space. And the reason it's important is it's not just the right thing to do, but it actually helps countries to develop. We have so much evidence now that helping children to improve their health and education outcomes uh, helps them to become fully productive members of their society. And that's why we're actually measuring the health and education outcomes of countries and we're ranking them on a human capital index so that countries can see if they actually develop the potential of their children, their country will actually grow and develop faster. So a country that's halfway between zero and one on the index is losing about one and a half percentage points of economic growth a year that, that could be generating better living standards for the population. So it's actually a really compelling case to do more in early childhood development. Mm, thank you. I'm, I'm gonna open it up to, to questions. I'm gonna give you a moment to think about it and maybe get some microphones around, but while you think, I just wanna want ask one, one question of my, my own. So you've all given very compelling reasons to invest in early childhood development, and I, I share them and understand them. Um, but I often come across um, leaders uh, who will say to me, I didn't have it, and I'm fine. I didn't have early childhood development, and I'm okay. Why should I do this? What do you say? Yeah, I, I always, 
I always speak, especially when I go out into my communities, about the basic concept of building a house and the fact that the stronger the foundation is, the stronger the house is. Right, so yes, you are fine, so you have a house, but imagine how much better you could be, <laughs> right? So I, I think that has bought in, in, in our local Jamaican context, that you have to get it right from the start, because what you end up doing is playing catch up along the educational journey. And we spend a lot of money on, on remedial education, right across our systems, right across the world. So at the secondary level, we spend money on school dropouts and getting that, them back in and at the tertiary level. But imagine if we put some of those funds and channel them into getting it right from the very start of the education. <coughs> I believe that foundation, it, it, and again, we've seen the results scientifically. So with Jamaica, I think we're now sold, especially it took us a long time, but tracking children for 20 years it is a long process, but it was necessary because we can actually say we see the real difference in the lives of the children. Mm. Have others come? I, I would like to say, um, answer your question with another question. Uh -huh. Are we really okay? Uh -huh. <laughs> um, I think that we have a reading crisis. And I think that our education systems are fairly efficient in teaching kids how to read and write but they are not effective in creating readers. We really don't have a culture of reading. And reading instruction, it's maybe one of the areas in teaching that has changed the least. We are basically teaching our kids to read the same way we have been teaching them for more than 500 years. If you take a look into how kids learn to read in the Renaissance, it's pretty much the same. I came across a book, a textbook, on how kids were, uh, the, the kind of textbooks that kids used to learn to read at that time. And it's, you know, the letters, and then syllables, and then small text, and it's phonics based. I think that we have been teaching kids too little, too late, and too badly. And I think that maybe one of the reasons of this reading crisis that we are going through uh, has to do when with when and how we teach little kids to read. And that's just reading. Hmm. Can I just ask you, just paint a picture. So the uh, president of a country says that to you. Um, and you probably can't say, are you really OK in this case? <laughs> um, so what do you say? Well, you know, I'm really struck uh, by how few uh, leaders of countries, finance ministers, actually uh, understand the brain development. I, I, I had a conversation uh, a few years ago with uh, the prime minister of a country and, and they were developing and they, they had oil so they were looking at how to invest um, their oil and they were thinking as they were developing that they needed to actually add more school, school years to their compulsory education system and they were going to put an extra year in high school. Mm. Uh, and make that compulsory. <coughs> and, and we had a com long conversation and I persuaded this Prime Minister at the end that actually if he added the year at the front end, mm. he would get so much more impact for the same amount of money. And, and he said to me, you know, this I really learned something from this conversation I didn't know. I didn't think the World Bank had anything more to teach me, but actually I, and it was actually, I think uh, it really brought home for me that policymakers just do not know. Mm. 
And we have, I think, a real uh, responsibility to try and help inform them. And that's one of the reasons we've actually done this index, because this index looks at things like, are children surviving until five years old? Because there's about 30 countries in the world where that's still important. Are they stunted? I mean, I think uh, you mentioned Dr. Kim, our previous president. I think he did a huge service to the world by talking about stunting when he went to meet leaders of countries and telling them what their rate was. They had no idea what it was and why it was so critical for the development of their country. And, and then lastly, of course, is the learning outcomes that, that children have. Because for years we've been measuring the numbers of kids we get into school, but not what they're learning. And so now I think when countries start to look at, you know, uh, in some cases they're getting only half the years of learning of the years that kids are in school. And when they start to think about what they can do about it, they have to work backwards to even, even really focusing on the early years and the d importance of development in the early years in order to change that. Mm. I just want to turn to the audience and I see our, our resident journalist, Jenny Anderson from Courts. It is on the record. Um, what, what would you like to ask? Thank you for introducing me, Michael. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, my question is about innovation. What's so interesting about the programs you all are talking about is they're all quite old. So the Jamaica program, Perry Preschool program, Abbasidarian, a lot of these programs came out of the 70s. And perhaps it's that they're so effective that we don't need innovation around it, but I'm curious what you all see in this supporting the caregivers, caring for the caregivers space that's new and different that you're excited about. Thank you. And let's just take two, maybe two more because we don't have that much time that we can answer them all at once. You got two over here. And then whoever would like to. Um, yeah, so just a really quick, I think what you mentioned about, uh, Ms. Gera Cruz, what you mentioned about the culture of reading versus just reading, I guess in this, set, in this time where there's so much competition for young people's attention from screens, et cetera, et cetera, how do you actually cultivate a culture of reading that is able to compete with the way the world has developed since your organization started? Hi, uh, my question is, um, what are the criteria needed to extend the program in other countries? The criteria? Yeah. Okay. So, so three three questions: Do we really need innovation or not in this in this space? How do we compete with the tablets? My daughter just found a tablet and has made it hers, so I'm dealing with this at home. And, and uh, what are the criteria to take these kinds of experiences to to other countries? Who'd like to take on one of the questions? Não, eu, eu acho que, é, em primeiro lugar, eu acho que qualquer política pública, inclusive política, principalmente uma política voltada para a primeira infância, tem que se basear em evidências científicas. E não havia evidências científicas é, é, que dessem é, base para uma política pública na década de 70, nem na década de 80. Isso começou a aparecer no final da década de 90. Então, é uma novidade, em termos de política pública, eh, historicamente falando, é uma novidade. Né? Porque nós estamos trabalhando com sistemas educacionais que têm 100 anos. Né? Então, eh, eu acredito que há uma, mudança, eh, há uma mudança nisso. E outra coisa é trabalhar isso com uma população mais pobre. Né? Porque quem tem iPad em casa, quem tem, já está com um grau de informação 
Mas se tiver ainda o apoio emocional né, de quem cuida, já tem um, um grau de diferenciação grande. O problema lá no Brasil, por exemplo, é que só 8% das crianças mais pobres, que vivem nas famílias mais pobres, desses 3 milhões que vivem nas famílias mais pobres, têm ou uma revista ou um livro em casa. Só 8%. Né? E, e, e dificilmente, aí começa uma desigualdade enorme, porque o impacto que tem a, o vocabulário, a mãe lê um conto para a criança é enorme, a, a, estudos longitudinais mostram isso, eu tenho essa base de dados, se vocês quiserem, né? é, faz uma diferença enorme na escola. E, e, e depois, falando em desigualdade, é, na presença do Banco Mundial aqui, quando chega aos, a adolescência, o fato de uma parte da população ter acesso à banda larga e a outra não, também é outro abismo. São vários abismos que vai se estabelecendo ao longo da vida que mantém a desigualdade, mantém até amplia a desigualdade, porque quanto mais tecnologia tem, pior fica a desigualdade. Então, eu acho que nós temos que pensar não numa população uniforme, numa população que tem diferenças muito grandes, desigualdades muito grandes. Okay. On the innovation, um, I think that it's important. I, I took this job five months ago, and I, one of the things that struck me, speaking to the people and my stakeholders, was a doctor that told me it's so important to do the basics. And uh, I think that that we on early child development, we have to remember that all the time as we tackle innovation. So uh, you, you can, you know, you, you should, the principles, you have to do the basics, and there's a lot of room to scaling this up, because as was mentioned here, a lot of the public policymakers are not aware of the science, of the evidence, of, of, of how public policymaking can, can actually uh, improve the lives of the underprivileged children. But then also, on the models that we test and that we're developing, we are always putting innovation and testing innovation to the limits because we want to look at the new methodologies that are possible to actually bring more evidence and add that to, to, to whatever we have at the moment and to keep that track going. I think that the world today is looking at, at technology, at AI, at data integration. How can we use that as systems to actually have more effective approaches to this. But then the, the, what we cannot escape and we cannot get out of is that we're talking about one child and we're talking about the purpose of changing one child to change society and that's, that's what's the beauty of it. And then on the, on the, liter, um, the, the books and the literacy, I, I really think that uh, we, When we talk about education, and maybe we're not going to get rid of talking about education in this session, I'm sorry to disappoint you, Michael, but uh, in Brazil, for instance, there's a lot of resources, official resources, a percentage of the budget from, uh, from the federal government and from the local governments goes to education. So there's a lot of money in education in my country. There is a lot of uh, public, uh, private, social private investment uh, resources for education. So in, on both fields of, uh, of the streams of society, there's a lot of resources in, edu in education. What we ad advocate from the early child development perspective is that if you have the basis, you have the readiness to learn. And once you have the readiness to learn, you are not going to get rid of that book. Mm -hmm. And even for the underprivileged, there's, there's a better chance that he's still going to have the technology and the influence of that, but he's still going to be able to enjoy that novel. I was, I'm going to end with you because you start with the teacher, you end with the teacher, but let's just get a couple yeah. answers from Annette and from Minister Green. 
and then give you the last word and I'll, I'll close it up because we're almost at time. Great. I just want to underscore the point about inequality. The countries that do well don't have this long tail of kids who are left behind. So reaching the poorest is an absolute uh, precondition for the development of a, of a country overall. Secondly, secondly, on innovation, there is a lot of innovation in developing countries. It always, it always amazes me. And, it, and it's great, uh, and some of it can be scaled up. It needs to be evaluated, but it's no substitute for doing the really basic, uh, important things around stimulating children. I've been really amazed in my home country, New Zealand, going back to basics. There's a campaign in New Zealand to get kids, to, to get parents to talk to their kids more. Talking matters, it's called because the size of a child's vocabulary when she hits school makes a big difference as to how ready she is to learn to read. So it's, it, it's you know, technology's great, but the, there are some stuff that can be done in any situ situation, including the poorest countries on the planet. Yeah, I, I think innovation is key, and, and the reality is that in our education system, you know, we have to more quickly innovate and change and adapt to the changing environment. So for, for us, we went about 30 years, 40 years, with no innovations. And then come 2005, we started with our Early Childhood Commission, and that was our first step, really, in relation to early childhood development. And now that we had the teaching, we had the research, but then what you have seen is that the pace of innovation has come much more quicker. So after that 2005 innovation, then in 2009, we developed the National Parenting Support Commission. Again, with the learning that you need to directly support parents. And that parents, some of them generally don't know how to be parents. So you have to find a way to intervene. And we have what we call now a parent mentoring program, where we choose a parent in the community that's doing well and uses that pair, use that parent to help other parents. I know this innovation is our latest with the Brain Builders Center to actually have places where parents can bring their children earlier. Where we want to go now is that there's a lot of research now on adverse conditions at home and whether we need to be screening when they go into the doctors for the sort of environment that they're being brought up in and whether there is a model that you can look ask a certain questions and see the environment and then intervene. There's a lot of exciting studying coming out of the United States in that regard. I think that's where we're going. In relation to the tablets, you know, my own experience anecdotally is you don't try to compete. You use it to enhance. So, you know, quite frankly, I have a six-year-old. What we had to do with him and his tablet is that it has to be 50-50. 50% games, 50% educational activity. What you find is that they're so taken to it so quickly that you can use it to enhance their learning capabilities, especially in relation to things like reading. And scaling up, especially as a developing country, we're here to help. There, no one size fits all, but we have a lot of information, we have a lot of study, we have a lot of good people who would be willing to help to provide that information. I can give you some websites after. You get the, the teacher gets the last word. Okay, so one of the reasons that we are apparently losing readers to tablets, it's maybe because we didn't really have many readers to start with. And I think it uh, has to do with the way we're teaching kids to read, when and how. And that's also one of the reasons that many kids are in school, but they are not really learning what they need to, to, to learn. So what will I do? There's no easy solution, of course but it's to make reading 
easy and enjoyable. I think it has to do with reading comprehension. So if we uh, can teach a little child to read when it's the easiest for them, because reading is language and little babies are prone for language. Just imagine what we can do if we can really get every child in the world to achieve his or her true potential. Really, there is no limits of what we as a society can achieve then. Thank you, Lisa. So I, I'm, I'm gonna close. Um, uh, you know, we, we, we think it's a very exciting moment. There is a lot of momentum, but the need to do the kinds of things that are happening in Brazil and Jamaica um, for the more than 250 million children around the world who are not reaching their full development potential. I think, how do you do that? That's where the innovation is, is required. How do you deliver it in a way that has, has high quality? And so we've been asking ourselves at the foundation, what makes that possible? What are the preconditions for that to occur? And it's, it's a very common thing to say, but we, we've been talking a lot about leaders and their teams. And I think what we've put here are some examples. And leadership not being a, a title or a position of authority, but people who can mobilize thousands of other people to solve a problem that's important that nobody can solve on their own. And it, it, it sort of uh, occurred to me that um, that's how we constructed the panel. And it reminded me of um, uh, a mentor of mine who would always uh, talk about the, the story of, of Joseph from the Bible. And if you use this in Jamaica, you gotta, you gotta cite me. <laughs> so, um, and he, Joseph was known as a great interpreter of dreams. And he told me this story when I was taking over as the CEO of this organization. And he said, um, there are people who can dream, there are people who can interpret dreams, and there are people who can implement dreams. Uh, there are very few people who can do all three of those things. And those are great leaders. And I'm very pleased to have five of them on the panel with us today. So please join me in thanking them. I encourage you to find the panelists. I'm sure if we had more time, there'd be more questions, but to, to ask them uh, anything you'd like. Thank you. Thank you.